Man, what a <clears throat> what an amazing start of the service. Man, you got Judah's baptism, and then man, are you if you're thankful for Will, would you just let him know? Man, I am so I love our I love our band, and man, it's awesome. But there, man, every now and then there is something really special about just a stripped down like acoustic worship. Man, it's just really, really good. So um Anyway, man, if you got your Bibles, turn to the book of Nahum. Man, we are excited about what God is doing in our church, how he's moving. Uh, and I hope, I hope you're here uh, to experience God's movement in, in your life. Not, not because church is the only place where you can experience it, but I hope he's moving in your life on a daily basis. I hope that you are walking with him and as he abides in you, that you are experiencing God at work in your life. That's my prayer for you. Regardless of where you go, regardless of, of where you're at, man, that, that, that's my prayer for you uh, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ. And it's just great to see uh, that example of, of Judah and following in obedience and, and man, conquering some, some fear and giving that over to the Lord. I just, man... Kind of beside myself this morning, if you can't if you can't tell, and that's good. But we are in a in the minor prophets, and we are preaching. I'm preaching from a message from a book today that I have never preached from in my entire life. Uh, I, I've I've been preaching a, a good while. I know I'm I'm pretty young, uh, and those of you that disagree with that statement, you're wrong. Uh, I'm I, I'm pretty young, and I have but I have begin, I have preached. I mean, from a, very, from a young kid, um, I preached. First sermon I ever preached was Romans 12, 1 and 2. Back when 95.1 was not the rocket, it was WNDA. It was a Christian radio station that had preaching and a whole bunch of stuff on it. And my dad was standing in for Joel Carwile. Uh, he was his associate pastor, and dad gave me the opportunity to share like a 15-minute message, and I've never really looked back. So from eight years old till now, and I've never preached a message from the book of Nahum. A quick search of my database of, of all the sermons that I've, I've preached, or at least for a long time that I've preached, uh, revealed to me that I don't know that I have ever referenced the book of Nahum in a message before. And then I read Nahum, and it all made sense. The book of Nahum is a very interesting book. We are tracing through this return series, looking at the minor prophets, tracing God's character through the minor prophets as it's revealed from God to his people. We're, we're writing in a time where Israel was split. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Israel was Samaria as its capital, and the southern kingdom had Jerusalem. It was known as Judah. Uh, but had Jerusalem as its capital. And so when we're writing, the book of Nahum was written, uh, it's important to understand context. Otherwise, you're going to read it and go, dude, God is ticked. And he's just mad. And it's one of those things that you'll just continue to read if we don't understand the context. And so the best way that I can set the context for you is, is this way. Uh, my mom is the best storyteller I've ever known. 
uh, I'll go to my grave believing that she tells the best stories. And when I was a kid growing up, any time that we were in the car with my mom, we wanted to hear, my sister and I wanted to hear a story about when she was growing up. And I would tirelessly berate her until she would tell us a story. And I loved stories about when, uh, you know, they, they went and did crazy things, dangerous things. I don't know where her parents were, um, but dangerous things. Uh, they do crazy things. They went crazy places. They, they just had a different perspective. Like, it was like hearing stories from the dark ages, kind of like when we tell our kids. Like, we don't feel old, but when we talk to our kids, sometimes we feel old because they're like, what's a CD, you know? Uh, stuff like that, you know, and, and it just makes you feel old. And, and, and I remember having these conversations and wanting her to tell stories. But my favorite stories that she told, my favorite stories, obviously my mom, her brother, my family, I mean, they're the good guys, right? I mean, I love my family. They're the good guys in the story. But my favorite stories they told didn't just have a good guy. They had a bad guy as well. We love a hero story. But in loving a hero story, we also have to understand that we like a villain story as well. Most importantly, we like to see when the villain gets what he's got coming to him, right? And when that happens, the hero wins and the villain is defeated. Oh man, it just there's just something within us, this internal justice. Everything has been set right and oh, I just feel good. You leave a movie theater and you just feel good, right? Because the hero won and the, the villain got what he's got coming to it. We, we, are, we associate our heroes. You really can't associate heroes without outside of their villains, right? You've got the good. You've got to have the bad. And so I've, we've come up with a little game that Will has put together of some popular villains and we've got just the silhouette you'll see first. And if you know who this person is, I want you just to raise your hand, all right? I'm not going to call on you. Look, the first service would not participate because they swore I was going to make them do something. I promise you, it's just a raised hand, right? The camera's on me. You won't even be online. It's going to be on me, all right? So just if you know who this is, raise your hand, and then we'll all say it together, okay? So let's look. First slide. That's more like it. Thank you, second service. On the count of three, who is it? One, two, three. Captain Hook. That's right. The mean old Captain Hook. Who's the good guy in the story? Peter Pan, right? And when Peter Pan finally knocks Captain Hook into the water with the crocodiles, everybody's like, woo, childhood forever, right? Let's do it again. Let's see about let's see the next one. Now, this is the, like the easiest one. I, I know. I did the, when Will showed me this, I was like, Pfft. but I left it. One, two, three. Yeah, man, this usurper, right? This guy that had no right to the throne just decides to kill off daddy, right? And then takes the throne for himself, runs off. Who's the good guy? Simba. Aren't we all thankful for Simba? Aren't we even more thankful for Timon and Pumbaa that put him on the right track? Like, oh, we're just we're just thankful for those guys, right? Yeah, every story has to have a good guy, has to have a bad guy. How about this bad guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Really? See, this got people last service, and I just don't get it. I don't get why y'all don't know who this is. All right, uh, one, two, three. This is Jafar. Come on. Like my favorite Disney line ever. Jafar, Jafar. He's our man. If he can't do it, great. No, nothing. The genie? Golly. Man, y'all got to get out more. Y'all got to get into the, what is that called? The vault? Like they, they, they let it out of the vault, man. All right. So, yeah. So, Jafar, we, we want to see him get defeated. When he gets turned to the genie by the spoil, spoil alert, like we're like, yes, he's in there and he's in the cave of whatever wonders and awesome. We all feel better about it. Next one. This is a pretty, this is a little tougher one. A little tougher, a little tougher, a little tougher. <laughs> yeah. One, two, three. Ursula, y'all, I'm going to tell you, my childhood was haunted by those little jars with eyeballs that she had, and that, like, haunting music she sang. That woman's creepy, right? And so I was very thankful, right, when the good guy just rams his bow right into her. I'm like, yeah, you deserve that, right? Like, keeping those little, poor little eyeball things in the, I don't even know what they were, but they, souls or whatever, right? Who's the good guy? Ariel, the Little Mermaid, right? I, my wife has watched this movie so many times, I think she might legitimately think she's a Little Mermaid. All right, next. Now, this one is the last one here. Last one. This is, I feel like this movie, this, this movie was not as mainstream, really. Like, Will, Will disagrees with me. Huh? Deep cuts. <laughs> uh, all right, one, two, three. This was Hades, right? This is the... You know, Olympian, Hades, going against the good guy who was Hercules. And Hercules gives him that right on the jaw. He goes flying into the pit, and everybody's like, whoo! All of his plot is thwarted. The good guy won. The bad guy got what's coming. The book of Nahum lays out in a lot the same way. Maybe not the theatrical value (laughs) of some of these but certainly there was a rival. There was an enemy. There was a bad guy for the people of Israel. And that bad guy was the Assyrians. The Assyrians with their capital city, Nineveh, had come in at the time that it's written. At the, the, the timeline, the time that it was written, it was written after Assyria had come in and defeated the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom had fallen, and Assyria uh, had taken over, deported all of the, the people, right? And so, and so the Assyrians were the bad guys. Now, you remember the story of Jonah. Remember that Jeremiah shared with us that, that God gave Jonah a message, and he was to eventually, and eventually he did, preach in Nineveh to repent. Nineveh repented, and it postponed the judgment of God on the Assyrians for long enough for the Assyrians to come in and actually destroy Sennacherib, the, 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 the ruler of Assyria, came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. In fact, got all the way to the doors, to the, the walls of Jerusalem when Hezekiah prayed. And remember, Isaiah laid out all of the, uh, the records in front of him and he prayed and God sent the death angel and killed like 180,000 soldiers in one night. Right, and so and so that's the story that we that we have here. And so the Assyrians were bad guys. Nobody liked them. In fact, we believe that 
Nahum might have actually even been in the north when the Assyrians came in. We're not sure on that, but we believe that that could be the case. So look, read with me in Nahum chapter 1. You're going to see what I mean, man. We see a side of God here that is... I'm going to be honest with you, it can be uncomfortable for us at times to really focus in on a God who brings destruction and wrath on people. That is absolutely the God that we see here. We see in the return in Nahum, we see a God who judges evil. He judges evil. He would not be a just God if he did not judge evil. Verse 1, an oracle... Concerning Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now we're not sure where Elkosh is. We're not even sure if it's an actual place. I actually had one of our members come by and tell me Elkosh actually means the bow of God. So it could literally be like a message from God's weaponry. Like that he is bringing judgment down. Uh, there's some association with Nahum and Capernaum, which would put him in the north. But we're just not sure. Elkosh is not a place that is referenced anywhere else in Scripture or in history. Um, but this is the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I just think if my precious little kids come out of kids' worship today with a, with a, with a coloring page, and on that page is a, is a depiction of God's hot, flaming wrath being poured out on creation with this verse at the top, I'm going to be concerned. Would you? I mean, this is stuff that we don't talk about. It makes us a little uncomfortable. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. By the way, this is Exodus 34. Remember me telling you last week, Exodus 34 uh, that God is faithful and he's, he's uh, quick to forgive. Uh, all of that, that it's the most quoted passage of Scripture by Scripture in the Bible. The, it's quoted more than any other passage of Scripture. That, this is a quote of Exodus 34. It's just the reverse. He is talking about he will by no means clear the guilty. Remember we talked about generational curses, visiting the sin of the father on the future generations, Right? That's where this comes from, Exodus 34. It's just the reverse of it, right? So they've, they've focused on the good. Nahum is focusing on the bad, on, on the wrath of God, right? He takes his vengeance on his adversaries. He will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. A sea is very wet. So... It takes a powerful being to dry up the sea. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Bashan was a place in the west that was an oasis. The, the word literally means fruitful. And the place that the word 
to describe it literally means fruitful can be withered by God, right? The sea by its nature is wet. Bashan by its nature is fruitful. It's gone. It's withered away. Carmel, same same thing. Mount Carmel was known for its plushness. It had a spring there. It's dried up. It's withered away. The bloom of Lebanon. We've heard of the great cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon meaning white. It was white-capped mountains just north of Israel. And the cedars were the biggest, most the strongest thing that people could think of. And even the bloom of Lebanon, even the giant cedars of Lebanon cannot stand against God's wrath. They wither. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. Mountains, a stalwart of, of structure and stability, they, mount, they melt, they quake. The earth Heavens before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Man, this is intense. This is... Vicious. We are talking about a God who is swiftly bringing destruction. And there is nothing that can stand in its path. He's writing it to Nineveh and telling them of the impending doom that is about to happen to Nineveh. Nahum 1, 9 through 11. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. What's he saying there? He's saying Nineveh's not going to come back and destroy Israel again. It's not going to happen. For they are like entangled thorns. Again, listen to the imagery. Like drunkards as they drink. Like an alcoholic beverage in the hand of a drunkard, Nineveh will be swallowed up quickly. Right? Um, See where am I at? They are consumed like stubble that's fully dry, like tinder in a, uh, in a fire. It is burned up quickly. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, the worthless counselor. Who are you? Assyria, at the time that, that Jonah wrote to the Assyrians, they were an up-and-coming power. They, they were not on the global scale like they were at the time of Nahum. But by the time Nahum wrote, they were the prominent world power. And there was such pride in the people of Assyria that they truly believed that they could counter God. I mean, after all, they had defeated God's people. So there was an incredible hubris and pride and selfishness that believed that they could rival God. What they missed is what we've saying, that God has no rival. He has no equal. And so Nahum is bringing all of this to light. What we see here, number one, is the right of God's judgment. The right of God's judgment. It speaks of God's wrath. 
And when we talk about God's wrath, it makes us uncomfortable, right? We like the God that forgives. We like the God who rescues and redeems. We like that God. The God of wrath scares us. The God of wrath makes us uncomfortable. Why is that? Right, the word wrath literally means heat. It, it is, it's used in the same way of venom in an arrow or in a serpent. The way that it burns, it, 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 it enters your, your flesh and burns away. It, it's a, it's a, the hot wrath of God is being poured out like lava on the, the Assyrians. Right? He, he mentions all of these places. It mentions that he's an avenging God. When we think about someone getting vengeance, we usually hear that in very negative connotations, don't we? Right? That God is avenging. That, that, and that, that doesn't sit quite well with us. That the idea of payback and rest, restitution is being made. Right? Like God is getting the Assyrians back for their plotting against his people. And it speaks of God's jealousy in this passage. And when we think of God as a jealous God, how does that sit with you? How does it sit with you to think that God is jealous? Jealousy as we think about it almost always carries with it the idea of sin. Why? Because it's usually pride and selfishness that motivates our jealousy. I mean, after all, there's a Ten Commandment, right? You shall not covet. You shall not be jealous of your neighbor's house or wife, their possessions, right? You should not get on social media watching all the positive snapshots of everybody's life and wish you had what they have. You shouldn't do it. It's not what you're supposed to do. Just do not Live in jealousy. When we think about jealousy, we almost cannot take away our pride from that. Why? Because we're sinful and pride leaks into everything that we do. But, jealousy is sin only as it relates to us. God, for him to be jealous, he is righteous in his jealousy. Let me describe it this way. I love my wife. And my wife and I have made a commitment to each other to be each other's one and only forever, till death do us part. Let's just say some guy comes in, starts giving my wife a little bit too much attention, starts making passes at my wife. I think everyone in this room would recognize and understand that I would have absolutely every right to step in in that situation and make sure that this guy understands that my wife is mine and mine alone back off. Correct? Nobody would blame me for fighting for my marriage. By the way, I'll just be here to tell you, 
we should do. We should be more jealous of our marriages. And not just when people step in and try to destroy, but we should be jealous of our marriage from day one. We should be fighting tooth and nail. We should be dating our spouses. We should be loving on them. We should be affirming them. We should be jealous of them long before bad things happen. But here's the, here's the principle, right? And this is the way Andy John said it, and I, think, I don't think I can say it any better. Jealousy is a sin, when it involves desiring something that does not belong to you. That's not yours. You're jealous of it. It's sin. However, jealousy is a virtue when it involves something that belongs to you. When it's something that you possess, it's a virtue to be jealous of it. You have been entrusted with it. You should be jealous of your wife. You should be jealous of your children. And what does the Bible say? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. What does that mean? That means that it's all His. We are His. All of creation was made through Him and for Him. We are His possession. It makes sense for God to react in great rage, to react in destruction and protection of his people. It is not the promotional side of love. It looks a lot better on a billboard to talk about God's love, redemption, and forgiveness. But if God doesn't have the protective aspect of his love, he's not a God worth loving because he can't protect us. What we see here is a scary God who is protecting his people. Secondly, we see the relent of God's judgment. The relent of his judgment. Nahum 1 verse 7. He has just said, God is coming and you're going to get it. I mean, this is good news to the people in Judah, right? Because the bad guy's about to get it. Yes! Get them, God! Right? This is good news. They're, they're excited here. Why? Because God has placed within them a sense of justice, and they're ready to see God move. He's delayed his judgment. What did it say before? He is slow to anger, but he is great in power. By the way, in your life, and with the sin in your life, do not mistake God's delay of judgment for his dismissal of judgment. Though he delay, he does not dismiss. Sin must be dealt with, and God deals with sin here. Verse 7, the Lord is good. (laughs) Hang on, Nahum. You have just talked about how God is coming down and he is about to lay the smack down on the Assyrians. The Assyrians are looking at this and going, man, this God is anything but good. But listen to what he said. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies even into darkness. Right? 
He is not just relentless. What he's showing us here in Nahum is he's not just relentless of his pursuit to deal with sin, but he is relentless in his protection of those who would come to him. This is what we see. And so the question that I have is, how do we look at a God who scarily wields all of this power we, you know, we, we equate that to man, like if I see a guy with a weapon in a dark alley, I'm not, I'm not headed toward him. I'm headed away from him, right? I don't want to get caught up in all of his nonsense, so I'm out of there, right? This idea of running away from man when there is, when, when there is wrath and anger involved. That's not what we see. That God knows those who put refuge their refuge and their trust in him. I think about it like my relationship with my daughter. I'm going to tell you, y'all, there ain't no kid cuter in all the world than my daughter. And she does this thing. She is in her own la-la land. Uh, And this is how she plays about 97.6% of her life. This is what she does. That right there. I don't know what she's doing. Sometimes she has something in her hand and sometimes you don't. If you have watched her in the nursery, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Just that right there. Over and over and over across our house, wherever she's at, it doesn't matter. That's how my daughter plays. And I just look at her sometimes and I go, Dad, gummit, you're cute. Like, just give me this lip. I want to kiss it like I just want to haul like she is just doggone it. She's cute. She's just adorable. I love her. And my daughter's quick to run to me. Quick to snuggle with me. and Quick to love on me. But when there's danger, if somebody were ever out to get her, I'm going to tell you, I'd get pretty scary pretty fast. I don't care what it means for me, but I'm coming after whatever is pursuing her. I'm going to stand between her and the danger. So big, scary dad, which I know that's a funny thought, Alan being scary. Big, scary dad, she is running to me, hiding behind me as I am bringing my wrath forth on whatever it is that is harming my daughter. This is what we see in God. A mighty fortress is him. And so, with man, with man, the way we escape man's wrath is to run from him. The way we escape the wrath of God is to run to him. God knows those who take refuge in him. And though I might have plenty of wrath for whatever's against my daughter, she will see none of it because I am her protector. And in the same way, our heavenly father is fixed. He is fixed over Israel and and through extension over his people today. He is 
fixed over them to protect them just as fiercely as he is dealing with his adversaries. He is loving and protective of his children. This is the God that we see. And so what does it look like? It looks like a return to him. To escape this wrath that is depicted in Nahum, we are to to experience the relenting of God's wrath. We are to run to him and find refuge. You know, there's something that's been going on in our land that I have probably been silent on for too long. At least a week or two too long. And that's the Asbury revival that's been going. I know that you've seen it. I know that you have. Okay? And now it's growing, right? There's other schools, Lee University, Sanford here in, in, in Birmingham, uh, and maybe others by now. I'm not just constantly having my, my eyes glued to it. But there's all this debate on, man, is it real? Is it not? Here's what I want to tell you. The posture God has called us to maintain throughout our life is repentance. Repentance is an individual posturing of ourself. I can't tell you if you are humbled before God. Now, I can sense some of that, but, but I ultimately cannot tell you where your heart is as it relates to God. I can't tell you that. Here's what I do know. I don't have to go to Kentucky or Birmingham or South Tennessee in order to experience a movement of God. What we are learning and experiencing God is that God is at work wherever we are. What's the difference? It is our willingness to be sensitive to Him. Revival is a human perspective. It's not God coming in closer. It is us moving closer to him. He's just as close as he's ever been. And for us to think that I've got to take a pilgrimage to a town where the presence of God is, is to miss the fact that we carry the presence of God with us everywhere we go. And so people would go, man, I see that and I think, wow, that's awesome. Or maybe you don't, but if you're one of those, man, that's awesome. I wish God would do something like that here. It's you. That's the problem. It's us. We are the problem. It's our refusal to repent and lay it all down so that God can renew us and take the flesh out and place within us his spirit afresh and anew. Maybe you're here and you're going, well, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's all garbage. Can I just tell you one way or another? God ain't looking for your approval to move. And your commentary on whether it's real or not does not matter in eternity. What is important, here's what I'll just tell you. If you want to know what I do, I, do I think it's real? Do I think it's fake? I think there are people that are there in those places right now that are absolutely frauds. 
their faith. They want to be a part of a movement and an activity, and it's just they're just there along with there is no repentance, there is no posturing of themselves in humility. I believe that's happening. I believe in each every one of those places there are people that are just wanting to get on the bandwagon of Jesus. But I also believe in every one of those places there are those who in their heart of hearts are laying themselves down in order to see God work in and through them. Revival is about our individual hearts toward God. Is there fake stuff? Probably. Is there real stuff? I better believe it. Do you know what God's word tells me to do? It tells me to pray for revival. Tells me to pray that God would bring it, not to be skeptical when it happens. Or to, you know, I am to pray that God would move people to repentance. And through that, He's brought glory. What He's asking His people to do is to return to Him, to take refuge in this God because He is good. He is good. <clears throat> God is on record. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9, and we won't read it for sake of time. But you can read a New Testament picture of God speaking. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9, if you didn't get that reference and you want it. It shares about how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved Lot. How God destroyed the wickedness in Noah's day, but he saved Noah and his family. That God is used to saving some and punishing others. That, you know, when we talk about a military action, right? If, we, if the military is going to make a strike, there is an uh, acceptable losses that are discussed. There's collateral damage that happens. With God, there is no collateral damage. There is not a damaging of people just because uh, they're around those people. If the, the innocent, right, are, are, are vindicated, those that have transgressed, the guilty are judged. And so God is used to saving people despite judgment being upon them. He is relenting of his judgment to those who would put their refuge, find their refuge in him. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the rescue of God's judgment. The rescue of God's judgment. Nahum 1 verse 12 and by the way, you can read, the reason why I'm staying in Nahum 1 is it really gives a synopsis of the entire book of Nahum, all three chapters. Uh, chapter 2 and 3 is some of the prettiest poetry and imagery that you'll ever hear. But it is vicious. It is rough. But the way that it is depicted is, is beautiful. It's detailing the fall of Nineveh and the Assyrians. It's detailing what that destruction is going to look like. And it follows it to the letter historically. But Nahum 1 verse 12 says, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, 
they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Judah, I've afflicted you, but I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. Behold upon the mountains, verse 15, the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What's interesting as we read this passage of Scripture, when Jonah prophesies to Nineveh, they're an up-and-coming power, as we said. But when... They're a relatively weak people. But when God uses Nahum in this prophecy, they're as strong as they've ever been. They are the world power. And when he brings the message to Nineveh through Jonah, it's of restoration. And God does restore. And by the way, he brings revival in Nineveh. But when they are at their height of power and they are completely drunk on their own pride, God tells Nahum, I am bringing them low. I am putting an end to them. Though they are at full strength, they are nothing. They are nothing compared to my power. History tells us that in 612, Babylon and other, other uh, joining forces attack Nineveh. They lay waste to the city, and history, for all intents and purposes, forgets about the city of Nineveh. It is not until 1842 that a man decides he is going to find Nineveh that Nineveh is rediscovered. Literally, God's judgment on the greatest city in the greatest world power of that day was so severe that Nineveh was literally cleared and deleted from the pages of history until 1842 A.D., not B.C. Thousands of years, Nineveh is forgotten. It's lost. This is the destruction that we see historically. History tells us this, right? Though they're at the height of their power, God comes in. He protects his people and he rescues a remnant. Listen to what Nahum 3.19 says of the destruction of, of Nineveh. He says, there is no easing your hurt, Nineveh. Your wound is too grievous all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. God judged Nineveh once and for all. Enemies of God. The bad guy got what they had coming to them. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. As we close Ecclesiastes chapter 12. For God will bring every deed into judgment. Verse 14. Every secret thing, whether good or evil. God will bring it into judgment. You know what that tells me? Sure, God judges the evil empires of the past. 
But I want you to understand that God judges the sinful hearts of the present as well. Don't mistake his delay for his dismissal of evil. God judges the heart. Do you know what the New Testament tells us about our heart? We are evil. We are evil. We are enemies of God. Though we would love to depict ourselves as the good guy, we are in fact, in our sinfulness, the bad guy. We are Jafar. We are uh, Ursula. We are these bad guys that deserve the wrath of God. Why? Because our sin dictates that we should get what we have coming to us. That's why God sent his son. He sent Jesus so that those who were far off could be brought near by the blood of his cross. That is beautiful, my friends. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ in a very real and personal way, there's never been a time where you have surrendered your life to him. I want to invite you to that relationship. I want to invite you to lean in, to lay down your life. The Lord knows those who take refuge in him. And you can experience his love his protection doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. But you can experience his forgiveness. And so if you're here and you don't have that relationship, I would invite you to respond today. The relationship with Christ is made available to you today. Not because of what you've earned. We're enemies of God. But because of what Christ did. And he has made us part of his family. You know what Joseph said to Judah? I baptize you, my brother. That he is his brother. We are sons and daughters of God, those that have received him as Lord and Savior. And I would invite you into that family today. You can come. Maybe you're here and maybe there's other things going on in your life. Man, maybe, maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but man, think you are not where you need to be. God has been removed from the throne and you are following after other things, pursuing other things. I would invite you to come. I would invite you to respond in obedience to him today. Would you do that today with every head bowed and eyes closed? If you need to respond to this message today, I would pray that you would come. As the Holy Spirit leads you, that you would come, that you would surrender to Christ, fall upon Him and upon His grace, find your refuge in Him, and let Him make you new today. In just a moment, I'm going to say amen. And if you're here and you need to respond in any way, this altar is going to be open. 
We would love for you to come and lay down things that you need to lay down. If you need a relationship with Christ, though, or need to make any other decision, know that I'm here, would love to talk to you. We've got counselors that are waiting that would love to talk to you about any decision that you need to make today. Would you come as the Holy Spirit leads? Father, have your way in our hearts and in our lives. Move us, Holy Spirit, to respond to you to respond to you without regard for who's around, without regard for what's going on. May we trust you. May we find our refuge in you. God, I pray for the one that needs to respond to this invitation. Give them boldness. Give them boldness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? If you need to make any decision, I'm here. Would love to talk with you. The altar is open. Would you come as the Spirit leads?